Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. From Newton to Darwin, and Curie to Einstein. Science has been built on empirical observation. But now, the very idea of a neutral observer is under threat. In a postmodern world, it is claimed all observation is perspectival. Everything we see is influenced by what we already think. So are we at sea in a world of competing models? Or is it time to reassert the value of the experience as a means of choosing between incompatible theories. Joining us to debate whether empirical observation can lead us to the truth are science and technology academic Steve Fuller, award-winning science journalist Angela Saini, biologist and best-selling author Rupert Sheldrake, and chemist and fellow of Lincoln College Peter Atkins. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, iai.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Daniel Sands. Welcome to Seeing How It Is. From Newton to Darwin, Curie to Einstein, science has been built on empirical observation. Now, the very idea of a neutron observation is under threat. In a postmodern world, it is claimed all observation is subjective. Everything we see influenced by what we already think. The founder of quantum mechanics, Heisenberg, went further, arguing that observing reality was not even possible. Are we at sea in a world of competing models? Or is it time to reassert the value of empirical observation, supported perhaps by machine learning and big data, as a means of choosing between incompatible theories. So let me introduce our speakers to start off with. Peter Atkins is an Oxford chemist and author of popular science works such as Conjuring the Universe. He's been described in the past as more hardline than Richard Dawkins. <laughs> Rupert Sheldrake is biologist and writer of The Science Delusion. His most recent book, Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work, explores the importance of spiritual practice in everyday life. And to my left, Angela Saini, who is award-winning science journalist and author, most recently, of Superior, The Return of Race Science. And finally, uh, Steve Fuller, philosopher, sociologist, and the author of Post-Truth, Knowledge as a Power Game. So we'll start with pitches from the four speakers. In a world of competing perspectives, can empirical observation lead us to the truth? Angela. <laughs> well, just before we came on stage, Steve said that I should go first because I'm the most mainstream of the three <laughs> of the four of us. And I don't know whether that's an insult or a, <laughs> or a good thing. I guess but, I think it's just a fact. It's yeah, just a fact. It's just a fact. <laughs> and I guess that's probably true. I am a journalist, so I don't, you know, I don't 
have theories of my own as such, like as scientists or philosophers do. But what I do is try and dissect what scientists tell us and why. You know, what are the motivations, the agenda behind scientific research and how it's presented? And my last two books, which have looked at race and gender, have really undermined this idea that science is always objective. Not because the endeavor of science isn't objective, of course it is, but because people aren't objective and humans have bias, they have prejudice, and this can affect what they believe and also bleed into the theories that they have and sometimes even the results that they come up with. And we know that's the case because we only have to look at the history of the science on women and on non-white people. So in my previous book, Inferior, I was looking at how historically, because science was dominated by men, and we have to understand the reasons it was dominated by men, because at the birth of Western science, it was assumed that women didn't have the intellectual capacity to do what men did, so we were actively excluded from scientific academies and universities, so we didn't have the opportunity to do the things that men did. But then in the 19th century, you see people like Darwin and many others, I'm not picking out Darwin in particular, saying that women had evolved this way, that we had evolved to be the intellectual inferiors of men. That was a phrase that Darwin used. And he did that because he looked at Victorian society and he saw that women weren't attaining what men were attaining, and he assumed that this reflected a biological fact rather than being a product of history and culture and politics and everything that makes up who we are as humans other than biology. And you also see it most clearly in race science. We can see in the history of race science, scientific racism, and in eugenics, here are ideas that are barely scientific that were used quite in a very self-serving way in order to prop up certain ideologies that kept people in power. So at the birth of Western science, Enlightenment science, there was this assumption that not only could we be categorized, but there was a hierarchy within these categories that white upper-class men in Europe who were doing this research, coincidentally, were at the top, women were below, and everybody else was slotted underneath. Um, and we still live with these ideas now. They still affect how scientists do their work and the results and theories they come up with. Challenging that bias within science is not easy. And in, certainly in my work, I've found when I interview scientists about this and why they sometimes don't read criticisms of their work, of their theories, even when people believe that they have debunked ideas that they have had. And sometimes it's just arrogance. Scientists sadly are more arrogant, I find, than other people because they are so clever. And this smartness makes them believe that their prejudice isn't prejudice at all, it's actually just fact. And so we're fighting against that. So while, sometimes while society moves forward on these issues, science is sometimes a bit slower. And this is why I just like to say that it took until 1945 for the Royal Society to admit women. It took until the middle of the 20th century also for Cambridge University to admit women as full members. So long after women, some women got the vote. And I think this is part of the problem, that here we have a group of people who believe themselves to be so smart that they're above politics and above bias. Thank you. And over to you now, Steve. So just to remind you, in a world of competing perspectives, can empirical observation lead us to the truth? Well, the answer is no, actually. And I think- Should we move on then? Next no, 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 no. I just want to just put my cards on the table. I think one of the things that's been exposed in what Angela says, which I largely agree with, is the fact that science is about the conceptual framework one adopts. 
and what counts as facts and what is seen as important facts, I mean, this is the other thing too, right? It's not just enough about accumulating facts, but also being able to figure out which facts are important with regard to the issues involved, right? That we actually get some kind of conception of science. And here, again, without denying anything that Angela's saying about the particulars about the time in which we live, the bottom line is that when the scientific method was first proposed by Francis Bacon in the early 17th century, he was very preoccupied by various sorts of idols, idols, I-D-O-L-S, idols of the mind, idols of the theater, idols of the marketplace, various ways in which inquirers already in the 17th century were being biased in the way they looked at things. And the experimental method was meant to be the answer to that, okay? It has not worked perfectly mainly because of the institutional framework in which this idea has been embedded. Not because the idea itself is wrong, but rather because the people who've been in charge of institutionalizing this kind of debiasing through various kinds of experimental controls, all the things that you associate nowadays with the scientific method, were actually enforced by people who had various kinds of agendas. That's a historical fact, and we live with that today but the point is, the answer is not to actually get rid of science, but it's to debug the system. But the system is fundamentally a correct one. Now, this doesn't make the issue any easier than, than, than Angela portrayed it. I mean, it's still as difficult as, as it's ever been. But it does require our thinking in terms of various kinds of things, not only in terms of the race, gender, class bias, perhaps even, that still exists within the way in which we, you know, science channels matters, but also in terms of the fundamental assumptions that are being allowed to be tested as science. Because one of the things, and, and I'm a historian, philosopher of science, and one of the things that becomes very clear, especially when you're looking at the history of modern science, you know, this goes back to Thomas Kuhn, who some of you may have heard of and so forth, is that science tends to be a winner-take-all thing. Right, so in other words, when a certain kind of position has managed to um, justify its own position, it consolidates the entire science around it and eliminates its competitors, so there remains just one, one version of that field that moves forward and everyone else is an outlier, a maverick, a rebel, etc. And that has been part of the, the dynamic of modern science. I am not going to deny that that dynamic has led to a lot of very significant positive conclusions, but at the same time it's excluded other views that can provide other insights. And I think given the kinds of problems that science finds itself today, you know, not only in terms of public distrust and all the rest of it, but also in terms of the, the actual things that science has contributed to, like the climate change problem, that it is time for us to rethink what is the correct conceptual framework within which we should be doing science. Now this isn't, so this is not an issue of the facts. This is about the issue of which facts are allowed to be displayed and how they are interpreted. And so that's where I'm coming from. Thank you. Thank you. What about you, Rupert? So just a reminder of the question, in a world of competing perspectives, can empirical observation lead us to the truth? Right, I agree with Steve. I think one of the problems in science is that we don't have many competing perspectives. There's a Kuhn's model is of scientific paradigm change. 
at one time there's a worldview that shapes what you can do and how you can interpret science. A revolution occurs and there's another paradigm takes over. But this is like a old style South American revolutions where one military junta takes over <laughs> from another. It's a model of dictatorship. And I think what we have never had in science is pluralism as a model. And I think we'd be much better off if we actually did have competing views, as the question supposes. For example, empirical evidence is not deciding the main issues in current cosmology. Physics, in its more theoretical basis, taken off completely from empirical data. Dark matter and dark energy are now supposed to consist of 90% of the universe, 96%, and no one has a clue what they are. So if you ask the question, well, does dark matter actually exist, even though there's no evidence for it, most physicists will tell you, yes, it must exist, because that's the way we can explain the universe. We can balance our equations by adding in dark matter whenever we need it. And you just titrate in as much as you need. There are other physicists who believe that every time you make a quantum observation, the universe splits into multiple universes. There are trillions, quadrillions of them. Many cosmologists believe there are quadrillions of parallel universes. This passes for science. You can hold down uh, the job of president of the Royal Society and believe this view without a shred of evidence. So actually, con contemporary orthodox science doesn't necessarily depend on empirical observations. It depends on fitting in with a theoretical model, even in the absence of experimental observations. I happen to be an old-style empiricist, and I believe in the value of empirical evidence. Um, I do research on a number of areas where there's a lot of evidence from observation from normal people that things happen, and yet within the world of science, it's generally considered taboo to ask these questions. For example, I do research on the sense of being stared at. Can you really tell if someone's looking at you from behind? There have now been hundreds of thousands of trials which show that people actually do have the ability to detect this. But does this evidence, overwhelming, published in peer-reviewed journals, actually make any difference to the defenders of scientific orthodoxy? The answer is no. Many of them just simply ignore it or dismiss it as rubbish. I'm going to save Peter the trouble. Of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so telephone telepathy. More than 80% of the population claim to have had the experience of thinking of someone who then rings. They think it's telepathic. The standard argument for 100 years, evidence-free skepticism, was that you just think about people all the time. And if one rings, you imagine it's telepathy, and you just forget all the times you're wrong. You can actually test that. In my experiments, People who say this happens to have four callers. We pick the caller at random. They're sitting being filmed with a landline phone. They can't guess who's calling because it's a random decision. And they, by guessing before they pick up the phone who's calling, they ought to be right one time in four, 25% on the chance coincidence theory. In fact, they're right about 45% of the time in hundreds of trials. The statistical significance, one times 10 to the minus nine, is far greater than the significance of the existence of the Higgs boson. <laughs> so um, here we have empirical evidence where empirical evidence should be able to decide the issue between competing worldviews. But sadly, it often does not, because those who don't like the evidence just ignore it. So we are in a pro there is a problem here, but it's one that I hope in the long run will be answered. One way of answering it is to have 
experiments done more widely. If you want to, you can do a telephone telepathy test on my telephone telepathy online experiment with friends of yours. You just need three people. The telephone telepathy test, it runs as an app on mobile phones. And I'm hoping that when we get to the stage where lots of people are fully aware and conscious of the fact this happens, that the views of those who deny it will seem like a fringe minority crank point of view as opposed to facts and empirical evidence and that in the end it might be possible to change uh, the general consensus view. So I take a sort of slightly naively optimistic view that in the end empirical evidence does matter in science and I've exhausted my time so I'll now hand over to uh, Peter. Thank you. In a world of competing perspectives, can empirical observation lead us to the truth? Everything I've heard so far this evening has been rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was hoping you were going to say. I, I mean, the experiments that, that Rupert pretends to have done are rubbish. I, I, I think the attitudes that Steve strikes are so old-fashioned uh, that you really can't believe them. Angela, you were kind of middle ground, so I can't attack the middle ground. Um, of course science is based upon two aspects of reality. One is observation through empiricism, which involves extending our own senses into different domains of discovery, looking at different wavelengths of light, looking at all sorts of different kinds of interaction. And science has proceeds only by comparing the observations that it makes with the predictions with its theories. And the theories that it makes are not isolated islands of, of ideas. They are continents. They are um, ideas flowing in from into science, from, from biology, from chemistry, from physics, from geology. And unlike religions, these ideas support each other. Take cosmology. Take cosmology. I mean, we're dealing there with the very large. You can't conceive of anything greater than the universe. Yet, in order to understand the universe, you have to take into account the properties observed of the fundamental particles, the smallest things that we have. So science is a, a wonderfully eclectic collection of concepts, of ideas, and a reticulation of these things. Aeroplanes don't fly because a society wills them to fly. Women have made no contribution to science, except here and there so far, and I hope that they will in future, because they haven't had the encouragement to do so, and let us encourage them, certainly. Um, and your sort of bizarre view <laughs> that, that, that there is more to science and in order to understand, to comprehend science, you have to resort to spirituality. It's just nonsense, frankly. Um, um, so I present myself, contrary to these non-scientists, uh, as, as someone who thinks that humanity should be proud that it has identified the way of discovering truth and 
what I mean by truth, since I will be challenged on that, is what can be discovered by science. So I'm happy to leave that as a happy circle for you to consider. diverse perspectives there. Um, it brings us nicely to our first theme, which is, is it possible to have a neutral and objective account of the world? And I think we'll go back to you, Peter, and I think we might know is. what you're going to say. Yes, of course it is. Science is all about neutrality. And the science, I mean, think of where science comes from. It comes from people in Papua New Guinea. It comes from people in Japan. It comes from people in the United States, Canada, everywhere. It's, it's transcultural it's transnational, it's trans just about anything you think about, but it's, it's a way of arriving at a consensus about reality and testing that reality against observation. And if, if that reality that is predicted by the current theories, then, and, 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 and observations say this is not quite right, then science, science proceeds by error. Science accepts, unlike other ways of discovering the nature of the universe, accepts that it might be wrong. And through its acceptance that it might be wrong, it is open to correction. Steve, do you want to jump in? Yes. Science talks the talk, but it doesn't walk the walk. Okay? Oh, come on. That's the bottom line. So everything that, that Peter has said is correct as a matter of principle and is what science officially stands for. But it has not lived up to it in yes, its it history. Give me an example. I'm sorry. I mean, it should be perfectly obvious. This is where, you know, Angela and I have some disagreements on some other matters. But it, it seems to me that it's pretty obvious it's that one of the reasons why all of the so-called post-colonial critiques have so much purchase is because of science's own hypocrisy with regard to applying the method that it claims to be living up to, okay? And you cannot deny it. So it's, you can't just always be trotting out the pieties about science tests of views, blah, 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 when you look at who's exactly being allowed to test the views and which views are being tested, et cetera, et cetera. So the institutionalization of science is actually a very crucial issue in terms of limiting the potential of science, and you're not addressing that at all. You're actually acting as if it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'm, I'm, okay, so just, just to clarify, you're saying the problem is not the principle, the it's principles the fact are, it, it's look, not this been is applied. why I talked about Francis Bacon, because if you look at the way in which Francis Bacon describes the scientific method, it is all about removing bias. It's about What's removing bias? bias that comes from many different places. So the principles are fine. It's just the way it's been institutionalized through the university system, through, through learned societies. I mean, that's why there's a kind of sociological blockage yeah, with regard not. to science actually living up to its full potential. Well, of, of course there may be a blockage in living uh -huh. up to, to its... <laughs> I hope you get get that or get a photograph. <laughs> My finger is still pointing towards <laughs> the sky. <laughs> of course, as long as the right finger. And yeah. it may be that bringing women, and we have to talk about women. What is it with it's you it. and women? Uh, I mean. <laughs> it may be. It, it, I think truth is out there, regardless of the gender. And it may be that ways of arriving at truth might depend upon the way that we approach science. Women 
might have a different way of approaching science. But we're going to get there in the end. And I don't know, I don't care how we get there, but it's the scientific method, that is, the appeal to empirical observation allied with the reticulation of theories that is the way that we're going to do it. Okay, so just to clarify, you're saying um, there has been a problem with the way this method has been no, not particularly. I mean, it might have slowed us down, but... but, but, but it might have slowed us down. Yeah, but, but we, we've, think where we are compared with where we were 200 years ago. I mean, I think science, I think the achievements of science, the achievements of technology that depend upon fundamental science... But what about science, the issues of domination that she's raising? What? The issues of domination that a Angela was alluding to I in her opening remarks. That. I mean, I mean, why should I worry about that? I mean, if we're in, in pursuit of the truth, then it doesn't matter who dominates Actually, the truth. Actually, it does matter. It, it affects Sorry. the pursuit of the truth. I mean, you yourself yeah. said science has errors and it can proceed. Yeah. You also said there are obstacles to progress. You're one of them. And, <laughs> and, 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 and in, 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 in the areas where I do research, you see, this is one of the problems. You know, you say it's rubbish, it's nonsense, etc. If I said your research in physical chemistry is rubbish and nonsense, I'd like to agree. Actually, I think it was well, you, you might. But I mean, the thing is that the, this is not a scientific argument. It's simply expression of prejudice, and so prejudice has its role sociologically, it has its role in people's lives, but it's not a way of arriving at the truth. Yes, it is. And, Oh, uh, I, I very rarely heard a defense of prejudice. No, I'm, I'm prepared. <laughs> uh, I, I think prejudice comes into science where you think that current theories are probably plausible but need correction, distortion, pointing in the different direction. So I think prejudice about science being in the right direction in general is plausible. But, but unlike in religion, where prejudice is effectively heresy, or the, the objection to, to prejudice is heresy, in, in science, the, the, it's, it's the discovery of the distortion of an idea that leads to progress. I have nothing against prejudice, Peter. even my own. Uh, do you know, I, before we came on stage, I really imagined myself to be on Peter's side because I'm a humanist and I studied engineering at university, so I'm not entirely you know, outside your set. But you embody the point I was making earlier, which is confusing prejudice for fact, you know, confusing your bias for objectivity. And this is the pro and I completely agree with S Stephen Rupert, surprisingly, on this, is that you, there needs to be humility in science. It's kind of the basis upon which you have to do your work because otherwise you can't control for your biases, you can't correct your mistakes because you'll never know that you're making them. Well, I think um, <laughs> that, that is entirely consistent with what I said earlier, that, that, that science is is based upon the ability to make and to acknowledge error. And I think that is the humility. But you're not admitting any error. You're saying, I look at the history of science, and actually I think it's been fine. It hasn't been fine. There have been huge mistakes that have made in fact. Look at just eugenics, but just so what, eugenics. Yeah. How devastatingly wrong that was. 
Yeah, uh, in, in, indeed. But I, th I think the, 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 the core point that you have put your finger on is that science should be humble in the sense that it proceeds by admitting... No, I'm it, saying scientists should be humble. That's what I'm saying. Science well, is inherently humble. Well, I agree with that. that. Let scientists. me say, science or scientists should be humble because they acknowledge that they are making errors. And I think there is no other source of knowledge in, in, in the modern world, religion particularly, but art in, as another example, where error cannot be acknowledged. But we, we scientists acknowledge error and that is the foundation of our success. Not acknowledging error is also the foundation of a lot of scientific errors. That's what I'm, that's a point that we're trying to make here. Well, I don't mind about that. The fact that we acknowledge that there are errors I is mean, very important. I mean, in far, you know, it, it takes a long time for people to acknowledge their errors, and very often they die before it happens. I don't you care. Know, it, it, there are scientists I know who have had terrible ideas, and they haven't been proven wrong in their lifetime because they haven't had the humility to read the critiques of their work and see that they might be wrong. And so long after their death, a, an accumulation of research well, has to prove them wrong. And even then there's resistance because they yes. were so slow but in acknowledging Max it Frank in the first place. said that you know, progress in science occurs funeral by funeral. <laughs> because right, people... so this is an argument for killing people. <laughs> Right? I mean, this is how. We, no, no, no. You're you're making the argument for for killing. Yes, scientific terrorism. Yes. yes. I, 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 suicide bombers out there. I think I would um, argue in favor of that. Actually. <laughs> to one side. I, I want to bring us back to this question of observation and the role of observation in science. Does human observation enable us to choose between models and theories? And if so, how does it do that? I actually think human observation can go many different directions. I mean, I think one of the things that we've learned from the history of psychology is that a, a, a lot depends on the conceptual framework and which, you know, so you can imagine from the standpoint of just sheer capacity of people, people's perceptual apparatus, they can see the same things, but which things they consider most salient, which is most important it's in terms of especially forming a kind of concept that will be something that will be, you know, culturally, sociologically, institutionally, whatever, determined, okay? And here I do think, I mean, again, you know, if you know anything about Gestalt psychology, for example, right? I mean, Gestalt psychology in the, in the mid-20th century was very important in kind of drawing attention to this fact. Namely, it's not sheer observation per se, because if you were just doing a kind of perceptual analysis, you can see all sorts of different people seeing the same thing in some perceptual level, but how they actually conceptualize it and take it forward will depend on which things they consider more important than others. And the scientific method basically is about trying to establish some kind of organizational principle for that, right? And, and the way they're going to do it is going to be through canceling out biases of various sorts and getting kind of collaborative, collective understanding. And this is where there's a value in actually having as many people from as many different backgrounds as possible involved in the process. This is an inherently valuable aspect of the so-called universalistic aspect of the scientific method. So the fact that women, that people of racial minorities, that people from working class, whatever, have not been historically represented in science 
is itself a problem for science at the epistemological level. And, and it's only been gradually addressed over the last, I would say, 100 years. Um, no, that's absolutely right. The, what you're observing is affect, what is being observed is affected by the observer. And that may, may feel a difficult thing to ingest. It was difficult for me. When I was studying engineering, my view was it doesn't matter who the person is. When you're building something or creating something, it will be the same at the end. If a bridge, a bridge doesn't stay up because someone is male or female, that's what I believed. And of course, in, some, in many areas of science, that is true that there are many different ways of doing things. Sure, and different people have different approaches. But the, you know, there, is some, there are some facts or some truths at the end of it. But in many areas of science, including what I look at, human biology and human behavior, actually it matters deeply because humans observing humans are always going to bring their bias to the table. That's just a fact. Because we have ideas about who we are, we are raised with certain ideas about who we are, plus a large portion of who we are is culture and society and politics, and that is always changing. So actually, sometimes you can do experiments in the 1970s. For example, experiments were done in the 1970s on female sexual behavior, and they got completely different results in the 2000s. Because female sexual behavior changed, not because of biology, but because of culture. And these aspects, you know, when scientists try to distill down kind of trying to get to a kind of unified law of who we are, for instance, of human nature. This, they forget that actually who we are is not just biology. Who we are is lots and lots of different things. And I, you know, even though I would never have believed myself to be thinking this, I think that applies to many more areas of science than we think. So yes. are you both agreeing that to decrease the damaging effects of bias, we need to increase diversity amongst our scientific practitioners? Well, yes, I mean, that's, yeah. Yes, that's can I say something on this? So, I think one area where this is very clear is in medicine, because we have at the moment our Medical Research Council, which believes it's funding scientific medicine, and it is funding scientific medicine, has an extraordinary bias just towards kind of molecular mechanistic medicine. We also have in Britain many other medical systems at work outside the official system, you know, traditional Chinese medicine, uh, acupuncture, Ayurvedic medicine, homeopathy, uh, all sorts of other different medical systems, naturopathy. All of them seem to work up to a point. Um, <laughs> and the, the general view... Homeopathy works? It, I'm, I, let me continue, Peter. No, but homeopathy works? I think it does, yes. And I think that it works because it may induce, I, the details of the molecules I don't know, but I think it certainly has a placebo effect. Well, and that's, that's, that's my point. That's the point I was trying to make. That when these other systems work, it, people say, well, okay, first of all, they say they don't work. Then when it turns out they do for some people, then it's a placebo effect. But what's interesting here is the placebo effect is precisely about what you were saying about people and people. Uh, the placebo effect happens when people believe they're going to get better, when they have a feeling of hope, when they feel they're cared for. And in clinical trials, they think they might be getting a new wonder drug, they're being well looked after. And there are big placebo effects. There are also big placebo effects from many alternative therapies because the therapists spend time with the patients. There are placebo effects in all kinds of medicine. So if we're trying to compare, if, the, if I ran the National Health Service and I was trying to cut costs, 
I'd want to find out whether by having a lot of non-conventional medicines, uh, we could actually reduce the cost and increase the effectiveness. And I think the way to do that would be comparative effectiveness research, a perfectly scientific method, seeing which methods work best for particular treatments like migraines, cold sores, lower back pain, etc. And it might turn out that regular medicine did best in all of these, but I think in many of them it might not. But we'd have actual empirical data, whereas right now the official policy is set not by empirical data, but by a scientific prejudice that the only valid kind of medicine is mechanistic medicine as done in the Francis Crick Institute with a strong molecular bias. So I think here we have a, an area where pluralism already exists. So there is a plurality of, official, of medical systems, and yet there's an official endorsement of one particular kind over all others. And I think that scientific research could actually help in leveling the playing field and finding out what works best. And some things might work better in some circumstances. Some might work, other systems might work in others. So but we need more observation, not less. More observation and a more pluralistic basis for that observation, yes. Peter. I'll let the applause get out of the way because I know I won't get any. <laughs> 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 right, now I have to say what I was going to say. <laughs> I, I found myself tired of disagreeing with the rest of the panel <laughs> and started to agree with them. So, ah. um, to the extent of maybe 90%. There are many studies, Rupert, taking your point about alternative medicines, there are many studies of the placebo effect and the way that alternative medicines might play a role. Don't dismiss it. Scientists are interested in the possibility that the placebo effect is very real. I suspect it is very real. Homeopathy, of course, is nonsense. We know that. And, I mean, physically nonsense. Um, and, and people who work in, for example, the Crick in Institute do not rule out the, the a very important role on the immune system of self-confidence and so on and, and so on. So don't, don't dismiss that. That is being done. Stephen Angela, the 10% that I found myself wondering about in what you were saying is whether different cultural backgrounds would bring in different scientific interpretations. I can see that I, I don't think they will. I mean, if you take a place like CERN, which is the epitome of, um, of international cooperation, I mean, thousands of people, literally thousands of scientists from literally hundreds of countries, all contributing to a, a particular... But they already have to know something at a very high level, so you've already filtered out any cultural difference that would have been relevant. I think that people who go into the Amazon forest and the Congo or wherever, who have a great deal of knowledge... Congo uh, is in, in Africa, not Yeah, but I didn't say they were in the same continent. Okay. <laughs> um, um, I, I think people who, who examine what the indigenous peoples have discovered is extraordinarily important. And maybe a political question then arises about the exploitation of that knowledge, but it's not an exploitation of the scientific knowledge, which is very, very helpful. You know but, uh, that modern mathematics, the way we use it, did not originate in Europe. Yeah. 
You know that, right? Yeah, of course. So the mathematics you use did not originate in Europe. Yeah, I really understand. So how can you say that there are, there are other cultures that have long and deep scientific histories of their own, well, that have their own legacies, and that they now have nothing to offer, that you have somehow transcended that, and they, now they are useless? Yeah. There's no evidence that people who are brought up in a kind of... Peter, I think your problem is you don't read the evidence. You don't read the history and you don't read the social no, sciences. I, I, and I, and the, the social sciences is where this evidence lies. That's a problem. Yeah. Not enough scientists read the social sciences and the humanities. I don't think it would help them. Seriously, I don't think it would help them. It helped I, me. I think I'm telling you, it helped me. I, I, I studied engineering and I didn't learn about these things. And when, as an adult, I took the time to learn about these things, and I learned about the history and context within yeah. which science sits, it transformed the way I understand it. And I think it would do the same for you. Well, I, I think that... I'm aware that we're, I, I, we're I, under some time pressure here. Yeah. So I do want to bring us to our, our final theme, which is connected, which is about progress. How can we make progress uh, in science? <laughs> Um, if observation is not value-free. So it seems that most of us have agreed that, that observation cannot be value-free. Does this hamper the, the possibility I don't of, agree with of that. scientific... I know you don't, Peter. <laughs> of scientific progress. Rupert. Well, I think observations are always bound by hypotheses and frameworks. So I don't think they're value-free, but I think observations are really the only way forward in, in scientific um, development. And we, we have in theoretical physics, superstring theory, multiple universes and all the rest of it, which are fairly observation free. And theoretical physics has got bogged down as a result. I think what we need uh, areas where you can make observations do actually open the way to development and, and progress in science. So I'm totally in favor of that principle. Angela. I think progress is already being made. We, I already see I speak a lot at universities, Crick Institute, welcome among them. And there's, there are so many more women, so many more people from diverse backgrounds in these institutions. And the cultures and perspectives that they bring are affecting the way science is done. They have been ever since women were first allowed into these <laughs> into these institutions, when they were first allowed into this, these establishments. There is so much more to do. Sometimes I despair because I feel that there are so many mistakes made in the past. We can't go back and start all over again. We have to work with what we have. But again, like I said, that requires humility on the part of every single researcher. And also what I would love to see, and I do push for this when I speak at universities, is for science students and engineering students and medical students to have not just a scientific education, to learn beyond their subject, learn the history of their subjects, so that they can appreciate the context and the consequences of what they're doing and the risks involved in what they're doing. And also, that instills humility, I think, because then you understand where ideas come from. And I think that's one of the problems we have in science is we don't always understand where <coughs> ideas come from. Steve. I actually agree with a lot, if not all, of what Angela's just said, but um, I don't think observation, I mean, there's a sense in which I think this whole panel has been sort of misguided in, in, the, in the title by talking about observation as being the key to science. Because it's really about, and I think this has been made clear in, in the discussions we've had here, is that it's about how you structure the observations and who's involved to observe, right? Because the thing is that, that, that at the end of the day, when we're talking about science, we're, we're not just talking about a bunch of observations that are somehow accumulated with each other that somehow get validated, but rather taking it in a certain kind of direction to a certain kind of worldview 
and that means getting all the, you know, if we're talking about science as the ultimate human activity, and, and here I wanna, this is where I wanna sort of take Peter to task, because I think one thing that he and I agree on, maybe Rupert, maybe you even uh, agree on, is that science is somehow the ultimate endeavor of human beings. And if you really believe that, then all human beings need to be on board with it. And that means that we actually need a conceptual framework and we need to be able to integrate observations from many different perspectives that actually enables that to happen. And the history of science shows that this has gradually been happening. But it is far from perfect and there are a lot of obvious problems already on the table, which Angela has been alluding to and, and Rupert has been alluding to, in fact, and that these need to be addressed in order for science to fully live up to its universal aspiration of being the ultimate form of knowledge that actually all humans can identify with. And it seems to me that's the, the, the end of the, you know, that's, that's the end game, right? If you can't get all human beings on board with science as the ultimate form of knowledge, then science will have failed. And I think we still have a large, a long way to go on that. Very briefly, Peter. I hate to admit it, but I agree with every word that you've just said. Fantastic. No problem. No problem. Unfortunately, I'm sorry, Peter. We are, we are out of time. Um, thank you all for coming. Let's thank our speakers. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.